0: Did you catch the news story this past week about the phony Starbucks? I mean, you know, if you like Starbucks coffee, this was hilarious. Some dude in Southern California opened a coffee shop and he, he called it Dumb Starbucks. You see this on the news? Okay, he ripped, off, he ripped off Starbucks logo, he took their menu, their coffee cups, even took their CDs for sale and he just put the word dumb in front of everything. So you could buy a dumb latte. You could buy a dumb espresso. My favorite, you could buy a dumb Nora Jones CD. Thought that was kind of funny. Uh, So people in Southern California, they think this is really cool, even though the coffee is awful. It's not authentic Starbucks by any means. People were lined out the door, down the sidewalk. They think it's cool. But the attorney, the corporate attorney for Starbucks, doesn't think it's so cool. And he's threatened to sue them. And the dumb Starbucks people say, oh, wait a second, we're protected by uh, parody law. Parody means it's an obvious joke. We're just poking fun at Starbucks. You know, we're protected legally. And the lawyer says, yeah, I'm not so sure. I mean, you're, you're, you're confusing the customer who comes in expecting real Starbucks, and they're getting phony Starbucks. Well, the truth of the matter is, if you know your coffee, you know the difference between real and phony Starbucks. But I want to ask you today, do you know the difference between real and phony Christians? Because that's the theme of the New Testament epistle of 1 John. We are in the third week of a 12-part study of this New Testament epistle. So if you brought a Bible, hope you did, would you turn to 1 John chapter 2? 1st John chapter 2, not the gospel of John, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, not that John. Keep going till you get to almost the end of your Bible. 1st John chapter 2. This 12-part series is called I am a disciple. You know, because the apostle John is going to spend 5 chapters describing the difference between people who are real followers of Jesus, true disciples, and people who are phony followers. They claim to be disciples but they really are not. Now, how do you know if a person is a true disciple of Jesus or not? Or more importantly, how do you know if you yourself are the real deal or you're just fooling yourself? Okay, th- this is why John writes this epistle. He wants to teach us how to, know, okay, how to know if we're authentic disciples. In fact, John uses the word know, K-N-O-W. He uses it 25 times in this short epistle. He wants you to know, to know, to know, to know the truth about where you stand with Christ. Now, there's there's another reason that John likes this word, know. And uh, that is because in his day, he was facing a heresy that was in danger of creeping into the church. He wanted to put a stop to it. The heresy was called Gnosticism. Say Gnosticism with me. Gnosticism comes from the Greek word gnosis which means knowledge or knowing. Now, now, the Gnostics taught that if you want, listen to this, if you want a relationship with God, you have to acquire some secret knowledge. That's how you get a relationship with God, secret knowledge. How do you get the secret knowledge? Well, that's a secret, okay? So some people got it, some people oh, got it. John says, this is ridiculous, you know, that's not how you know that you, you you know God. He thought this was a dangerous heresy he wanted to put a stop to. In fact, there's an amusing anecdote t- told about John, an ancient anecdote, that one day John was relaxing in a public bath in Ephesus, his hometown. And who should walk through the front door of the public bath but Serinthus? Cerinthus was a notorious Gnostic. And when John saw him, according to this ancient anecdote, he grabbed a towel, rushed out the front door... Saying, run for your lives. The enemy of the truth is here. Run before the, the, the roof caves in. And I've always liked that story. I doubt it happened that way, but I've been amused to think of the Apostle John running down the main street of Ephesus in a bath towel. I'm easily amused. John would say, you know, th- this is not how you know you know God, this is not how you know yourself to be a disciple of, of Jesus. You know, it's got nothing to do with some secret knowledge. Some, you know, I know the Gnostic handshake. It's got to do with whether or not you're able to pass three basic tests. Now, if this sounds familiar, it's because a couple of weeks ago when we started our study of 1 John, I introduced the book by saying John is going to repeatedly re- refer to three different tests, so to speak, that prove whether or not you're, you're a true Christ follower. Okay, The first test is a theological test. Okay, what do you believe about Jesus? Because true disciples believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God come to earth in the flesh. Okay, deity and humanity in one person. That's what true disciples believe. Then, secondly, there's the moral test. Are you walking in obedience to God's commands? Okay, are, are you making a habit out of studying this book and putting its principles into practice? The moral test. And then thirdly, there was the social test. Are you loving other people? You know, are, are you demonstrating that love? You're not just talking love, but you're demonstrating it through tangible acts. Now, interestingly, in today's passage, we're going to be in 1 John 2, beginning at verse 3, two out of the three tests pop up in this text. Okay, The tests pop up off and on throughout the book. You'll see two of them in this passage. You'll see the moral test, are you walking in obedience to God's commands? You'll see the social test. Are you loving other people? We're calling this passage today, we're calling it Walk the Talk. Now, I know that's an old cliche, but it captures what John's saying here. If you're a true disciple, you pass the tests. You walk the talk. So begin at verse 2. Let me read the first paragraph to you. Note the word know, K-N-O-W, John's favorite word. Circle it if you've got your own Bible. Four times you'll see it in the, in the opening paragraph he says we know we know that we've come to know him if we keep his commands Okay, whoever says I know him I'm a Christ follower but does not do what he commands is a liar and the truth is not in that person but if anyone obeys his word love for God is truly made complete in them this is how we know we are in him whoever claims to live in him must live as Jesus did okay how does a person know They're a disciple. What does it mean to walk the talk? I want to give you four points from the text we're looking at today. If you haven't taken your outline out, I encourage you to take it out, fill it in. Even if you toss it in a garbage can on your way out, just the mere practice of filling it in will make what God says stick. Okay, so here's number one. The reality test in this text is obedience. Okay, this is the moral test, right? Are you walking in obedience to God? There are two phrases that I want you to underline in your Bible, two phrases in the verses I just read to you. Verse 3, underline, keep his commands. Verse 5, underline, obeys his word. How do you know if you're a true disciple of Jesus Christ? Well, John says in these verses, the reality is obedience. You know, do you keep God's commands? Do you obey God's word? Now, let me point something out that's real obvious here, but it's so obvious you might miss it. Okay, you, you can't keep God's commands unless you know his commands. You can't obey his word unless you know his word. You following me? Here, It's interesting. John uses two different words to describe the Bible here. He calls it in verse 5 God's word, his word. This is a general term to describe Scripture. The other term he uses is in in verse 3, he calls it God's commands. This is a, a more specific, more particular word. He's talking about individual commands that you find in the pages of the Bible. There's a general knowledge of the Bible. There's a specific knowledge one can have of the Bible. My question for you is, do you have just a sort of general familiarity with the major contours of the Bible? Or do you know its specifics? Are you reading it, studying it, finding commands in it to obey? Let let me illustrate what I'm talking about here, okay? A couple of weeks ago, I was on my way to uh, Christ Community Church for a Saturday night service. And I looked at my watch and I noticed I was running a few minutes late. So I picked up my cell phone. To call ahead to call the programming team and say, go ahead and start the pre-service prayer without me. I'll be there in a few minutes. I'm in the middle of my phone call. I look up in my rearview mirror, and there are red whirling lights behind me. They they were for me. And so I pulled off the side of the road, and as I lowered my window, I'm thinking to myself, I have no idea why I've gotten pulled over. But I have several uh, police friends And they have told me that when they're doing traffic duty, the question they hate to have motorists ask is, what seems to be the problem, officer? Because, you know, that is that feigned innocence just drives nuts. So I know I'm not going to ask what seems to be the problem. So I just roll down my window and the officer pokes her head in and I say, Hello. (laughs) And I figure, I'll wait, she'll tell me what the problem is. And she did. She said, You were you were on your phone without an earpiece. You know, that's the new law as of January 1st, and this was like the third week into January. And I looked at her and I said, That's the law? I didn't know. How many of you understand this is not a good line to use with the traffic cop? You know, I, d- I didn't know that was the law. I didn't know the speed limit was 35. I didn't know pedestrians have the right of way. I said, I didn't know. A cell phone? I didn't know. Fortunately, she was in a benevolent mood and she wrote me a warning instead of a a ticket, but, you know, I I learned something there. You can't obey the traffic laws unless you know the traffic laws. So if you don't know them, you're not going to obey them, and you're going to end up in a lot of trouble. The same is true when it comes to obeying God's laws. You following this analogy here? Some of us are sitting here today thinking, you know, we're pretty cool in our relationship with God when the reality is things are not cool. We're oblivious to commands that we're walking in disobedience to. And the reason we don't know it is because we don't know God's commands. You know, let let me give you a quick example of this. You know, at, at our church, church our size, we... You know, we marry a lot of young couples. They come to us for weddings. And so in the very first premarital counseling session, one of the things we cover is we say, and by the way, if you're currently living together, we ask that you make other arrangements, that you live separately until your wedding day. Now this comes as a shock to some couples, and and they'll try to explain to us immediately why why it is they're living together, and they'll they'll say, well, you know, we're doing it for economic reasons; it's cheaper to live together, or we're doing it to find out if we're compatible. You know, we want to make sure the sexual compatibility thing, like, you know, that usually works. Let me tell you, uh, or they'll they'll say. They'll say, you know, we know that traditionally this has not been acceptable, but times have changed and our friends are doing it now. Or they'll say, you know, we're, it's not like we're sleeping with just anybody. This is the person we've committed our life to. So, you know, that's why we're currently living together. And I hear those reasons and I say, they all sound good to me. I mean, they all sound good to me until I read God's book. And you know, What I've discovered is I can't get past the second chapter of this book, Genesis chapter 2, before I read that God's design is that a sexual relationship be reserved for a marriage between a man and a woman, a husband and a wife. Okay, let me give you the verse. Genesis 2, verse 24. Note the order here. This is God's design. God's word says that's why a man leaves his father and mother and is united to his wife, and then they become one flesh. So you leave home, you get married, husband and wife united, and then you have sex. So we share God's design with couples. We say, okay, this is God's plan laid out in his holy word. And as you might guess, we get two reactions. Okay, some couples look at us and say, you know, you want us to move out? Adios. (laughs) You know, we'll find another church to marry us. But some couples say, Wow, this is God's command. You know, really we didn't realize that. I mean, we knew traditionally people haven't done it, but we just we didn't know it was like in the Bible. Now that we see it's in the Bible, here's what we're going to do. We're going to move out. We're going to live separately until our wedding day. Who are the true disciples? See, the reality test is obedience. Are you willing to obey God? Now, I know that some of you may be thinking at this point, rules, rules, rules. Yeah, I don't want rules. I want a relationship with God. And I understand, because I'm not a big fan of stupid man-made rules. But I want to tell you, if you find the command in the Bible, it's not a stupid man-made rule. It's a wise God-made rule. And one of the things I've discovered about the commands of Scripture, even when initially I don't like them, and they just seem wrong or over-the-top to me, I've discovered over years of walking... With God in his word, that his commands are always for my best. Besides that, why do we think, why do we think that God's rules are at odds with enjoying a relationship with God? Why do we think these two things are antithetical? The reality is they go hand in hand. I want you to go back to verse 5, 1 John 2, that I read a moment ago. It says, But if anyone obeys his word, you know, keeps the rules, if you would, God's rules. Love for God is truly made complete in them. You hear what John's saying here, friends? He's saying the more we obey God, the greater our love for God grows. Jesus made the same connection between obedience and love in John 14, verse 21. He says, Whoever has my commands and keeps them is the one who loves me. Don't say you love me if you're not willing to obey me, Jesus says. They go hand in hand. The one who loves me by obeying me, will be loved by my Father, I too will love them and show myself to them. You know the, the reality test for a true disciple is obedience. And just an aside here, this is why I write my biblesavvy.com blog twice a week, because I am passionate about getting people into the Bible for themselves, so I follow a daily Bible reading schedule, and you could, you could access that schedule, and that I then I comment on it in the hopes of coaching you to get your own stuff out of that text. Because I want you to walk in obedience to God. I want you to figure out what principle needs to be obeyed in this passage. And so if you haven't checked it out, biblesavvy.com twice a week. Number two, the role model for this obedience is Jesus. Look again at verse 6. This verse blows me away. Whoever claims to live in him must live as Jesus did. That's all. (laughs) Whoever claims to live in him must live as Jesus did. Suppose I told you today that I just started taking violin lessons because I plan to play the violin like Joshua Bell someday. You know who Joshua Bell is? If you don't, Google him. An amazing violinist. So yeah, I'm going to be like Josh. Or suppose I, I told you I just enrolled in a business course at the local community college because I plan to run a company like Bill Gates someday. You know, Bill's kind of my role model, run a company like Bill. Or suppose I told you that I've been hitting a lot of balls in an uh, indoor driving range this winter because this spring I hope to hit my tee shot like Tiger Woods. Say, so If I said this to you, what would you say to me? You would say, you're delusional, Jim, wouldn't you? See, I'll tell you about my only golf lesson ever. Some of you have heard the story before. Some years ago, a friend of mine said, hey, I'll pay for a professional lesson if you want. So I went to a pro for a golf lesson. And if you've never done this, it's it's kind of awkward when you're taking the lesson because he's adjusting your grip and your stance and your backswing and your follow-through. And and so I hit a lot of flubs. And what I didn't know is that one of my staff members had heard that I was going to take this lesson And so he got there ahead of me, hidden some bushes with a video camera, (laughs) caught all my flubs, you know, on camera, and then this same guy gave the announcements the next weekend at our services and played bits and pieces of my flubs. Yeah, he no longer works at Christ Community Church. You know, it's ridiculous to think I'm ever going to golf like Tiger Woods, And yet John urges me and you to live as Jesus would, to live as Jesus did. You know, as over the top as this challenge seems to be, our role model when it comes to obedience is Jesus Christ. And Jesus obeyed God the Father 100% of the time, never disobeyed. John 8, verse 29, Jesus says, I always do what pleases the Father. That's my role model, Jesus. I always do what pleases the Father. Philippians 2, verse 8 says that Jesus humbled himself by becoming obedient. Listen to this obedient to death, death on a cross. Jesus was obedient. My role model was obedient to the point of death. Is Jesus your role model? Now, I'm not asking, is Jesus a good role model? Because we know the politically correct answer to that is, of course he is. But I'm asking, is Jesus your role model? In other words, are you consciously, deliberately seeking to emulate Jesus in every area of your life day after day after day? Does does what come out of your mouth sound a lot like what would come out of Jesus' mouth? Because he's your role model. Are you as concerned for the poor as Jesus was? and he is, because he's your role model. Jesus got baptized publicly. Have you ever been baptized? Because he's your role model. Is what you view on the internet what Jesus would view on the internet? He's your role model. Jesus loves your boss. Do you love your boss? Jesus is your role model. When the devil tempted Jesus, Jesus fought back with Bible verses. Are you learning Bible verses by heart with which to fight temptation? Jesus is your role model. See, Maybe it's time to bring back the WWJD bracelets so that we're reminded countless times in the course of a day that we're to be asking, what would Jesus do? Look again at verse 6. Whoever claims to live in him must live as Jesus did. Friends, this is what it means to walk the talk. If you, if you claim to live in Jesus, that's the talk part, you say, I'm a Christ follower, then you must live as Jesus did. That's the walk part. The walk that's supposed to line up with your talk. In fact, John actually uses the word, talk, uh, the, the word walk here in verse 6. I'm not sure why our English translators translate it as live, but the second live you see in verse 6 actually should be translated walk. That's literally the word that's being used here. You know, if you claim to live in Jesus, you must walk as Jesus did. Let me tell you why I like the word walk. Okay. It's because following Jesus is a step-by-step process. You've heard the question before, how do you eat an elephant, right? So what's the answer to that? How do you eat an elephant? One bite at a time. Question. How do you walk as Jesus did? Answer, one step at a time. Right. So don't be overwhelmed by the thought that, oh, Jesus is my role model? Like I'm supposed to be a perfect reflection of Jesus by the end of next week? No, that's unrealistic. But the expectation is that step by step throughout the course of a day, you're following Jesus. You're doing what Jesus would do. Now, if that sounds difficult, You know, it is, but the bonus here is that Jesus gives the power, he gives the determination, he gives the strength to pull this off step by step by step. You know, I love the analogy that John uses, not here in the first epistle, but in the Gospel of John for our spiritual union with Jesus and what it produces in us. I mean, before I I give you the metaphor, look again at verse 6. Okay, it closes with, with saying that we should walk as Jesus did, but the line before it says... You know, John says, I'm talking to people who claim to live in him. Okay, if you've surrendered your life to Christ, you live in him. What does that mean? Well, in the Gospel of John, John paints a picture of this spiritual union, where the strength and the power to walk as Jesus did comes from. He says, Jesus is like a vine, like a grapevine, and we're all like branches that are attached to Jesus. If you're truly attached to the vine, then your branch is going to produce fruit. See, if you're drawing nourishment from Jesus, then you're going to walk as Jesus did. But believe me when I tell you the Christian life is not difficult. It's impossible. If you try to obey Jesus on your own, no chance. So you've got to be plugged into the vine. You've got to do things that keep you attached to to the vine. You spend time in God's word. You spend time in prayer. You huddle up with other Christ followers in a community group. You show up for worship. All these things keep you connected to Jesus. You draw nourishment from Jesus, and your life produces fruit. You draw nourishment from Jesus, and you walk as Jesus did. You get it? Good. Got to come from Jesus. Number three. Rule number one is love. Okay, John has been talking about obeying God's commands, but now he's going to zero in on one of those commands in particular. Interestingly, in the next two verses, he's talking about a command, a command, a command, but he doesn't explicitly tell us, at least not immediately, what command he's got in mind. So as I read verses 7 and 8 to you, see if you can figure out what command John is thinking about as he writes verses 7 and 8. He says, Dear friends, I'm not writing you a new command, but an old one, which you've had since the beginning. The old command is the message you've heard, yet I'm writing you a new command. Its truth is seen in him and in you because the darkness is passing and the true light is already shining. Stop there. What command do you think John has in mind in these verses? Any idea? Call it out if you think you know. Okay, Love your neighbor. Love others. How do we know that that's what John has in mind? Well, for starters, I cheated. I I dropped down to verse 10. I looked at the fuller context. In verse 10, he says, anyone who loves their brother and sister lives in the light. So I know that's the command John has in mind when he writes verses 7 and 8. But there's another reason I know that John has loving others in mind. It's because of the way he begins verse 7. He begins it with the words, dear friends... Now, if we were reading this in the original Greek text, what we'd understand is not dear friends. That's our English translation. What he writes literally is loved ones. Isn't that interesting? He's going to remind us of the command to love others, and he begins by saying, by the way, I really love you guys. I really love you guys. Now, now look at verses 7 and 8. In verse 7, John refers to the love others command as an old command. You see the word old pop up a couple of times. And then in verse 8, he calls it a new command. Like, make up your mind, John. Is this an old command or is it a a new command? Yes. (laughs) It's it's both. It's an old command because, look at the middle of verse 7, because it's a command that's been around since the beginning. You see that line? Since the beginning, that's why, it's old. since the beginning of what? Some Bible scholars say, well, since the beginning of a walk with Jesus. John's writing to people and saying, since the minute you put your trust in Christ, the minute you surrendered to him, you've been hearing this command, love others, love others, love others. Other Bible scholars say, no, it goes back even further than that. It goes back to the beginning of the Bible. Third book in, Exodus, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, chapter 19, verse 18, written by Moses, 1400 B.C., says, Love your neighbor as yourself. This is a really, really old command. This is a venerable command. You know, This is a command that holds a position of honor among other commands. This is a command that ought to be at the top of our to-do list. And yet, on the other hand, he says, this is a new command. Look at verse 8. What makes this command new? Well, right after he says, I'm writing you a new command, the next line is, and its truth is seen in him. Stop there. The truth of this command is seen in who? In Jesus. John says, let me tell you why this command is a new command. Jesus comes on the scene. He takes an age-old command, and he gives it new meaning because he raises the bar. He raises the standard. If you want to know what loving others looks like, look at Jesus. say, oh, my goodness. He's not only my role model when it comes to obedience in general. He's my role model when it comes to loving others specifically. If you want to know what loving others looks like, look at Jesus. Jesus loved bad people. I think of the money-grubbing tax collector Zacchaeus. Jesus loved him. Jesus loved needy people. I call to mind the desperate beggar, blind Bartimaeus, sitting by the side of the road outside Jericho. Jesus passed by. He calls, Jesus, Jesus, and everybody wants to hustle Jesus on. And he says, no, stop. And he cares for this man, heals this man. Jesus loved annoying people. You won't find people more annoying than his disciples. You know, they they would break out into an argument at the drop of a hat over things like, which of us is the greatest? Imagine living with that day in, day out. Jesus loved hurtful people. Roman soldiers nail him to a cross and he prays, Father, forgive them. They just don't know what they're doing. Jesus loved rebellious people. People like you and me, people who thumb their nose at him and walk away, loves those kind of people? Let let me ask, do do you love bad, needy, annoying, hurtful, rebellious people, do you? I didn't think so. I don't either. Which is why we got to go back back to the previous point again. Jesus is not only our role model, but the ability to do what Jesus did has got to come from Jesus himself. See, he's the vine that produces nourishment so that we branches can produce fruit. He's the love that we got to draw upon if we're going to love unlovable people. Anybody can love lovable people. We all love lovable people. The true test is can you love the unlovable people in your life or people who even though you love them, they do unlovable things and you're still called upon by God to love them. You could only love them if you draw upon Jesus' love them. That's where it's got to come from, from the vine. You know, this command that Jesus wants us to walk in obedience to is the command to love others. And that brings us to a fourth and final insight here. You know, if we reject this, if, if we fail to love others, the rejected alternative is hatred. You know, look at verse 9 and following. Anyone who claims to be in the light but hates a brother or sister, is still in the darkness. Anyone who loves a brother and sister lives in the light. There's nothing in them to make them stumble. But anyone who hates a brother or sister is in the darkness, walks around in the darkness. They don't know where they're going because the darkness has blinded them. See any repetitious words there? Now, the first week of this series, when I was introducing you to 1 John, I warned you, John is a black-and-white sort of guy. I mean, there is no gray, there is no middle ground with John. You see that in the verses I just read to you? You either love people or you what? You hate them. You could say that out loud. Okay. You either walk in the light or you stumble around in what? Darkness. Doesn't it bug you when John speaks in those sorts of stark contrasts? Don't you just want to object? Come on, John, there's got to be some middle uh, room here. I mean, I admit that there are people that I just don't love as I should, but yeah, I don't hate them. It's just that I think yeah, they're jerks. May I ask you a question? Who are the jerks in your life right now? You know, I'm serious. Are you married to a jerk? You know, your husband barks at you. Your wife spends too much money. Are your parents jerks? they got all sorts of stupid rules. You're a middle school student, high school student, you run into jerks at school? Those super cool athlete jerks. Or at the other extreme, those brainy jerks who ruin the curve on the test for all of us, yeah? Is your boss a jerk? Is the guy that beat you out for the promotion a jerk? Is the customer that constantly complains a jerk? Are there jerks in your neighborhood? Like the ones whose dog poops in your front yard all the time? Or the guy who revs up his snowblower at 6 a.m.? Jerk. (laughs) Have you been surprised to discover there are even jerks at Christ Community Church? You've gotten in a ministry and run into some of them or in a community group, and that guy's a jerk. got to be careful what I say or you'll think I'm a jerk. See, You don't hate those people. No they just bug you. You're irritated with them. Sometimes they make you mad. John says, watch out because you you are either learning to love, listen, you're either learning to love people or you're practicing a subtle form of hatred toward them. That hatred is causing you to walk in darkness and people who walk in darkness, look at verse 10, circle the word, stumble. Stumble. Or verse 11, people who walk in darkness are blind. Now what does John mean when he says that our hatred toward people, okay, you don't like the word hatred, too strong, call it irritation, resentment, annoyance, but it's causing you to stumble. What does he mean? Let me give you an analogy from something I learned from A.C. Green. And as I tell you this story, I'm going to ask our worship teams to come out on the stage at each of our Campuses, because we're going to close. We're going to do something very unusual, something special, in close in closing here in just a moment. But before I interviewed AC Green last weekend, I, you know, I went to school on him. I do this with all my interviews, yeah, so I looked at everything online I could find any interviews with him that had been done. I read a, a short biography on his life, and by the, just an aside here. At the end of our services last week, we asked people, if you want to begin a relationship with Christ, surrender to Christ, like A.C. Green has has done, you know, make that decision and then pick up a next steps packet. Eighty-three people at four campuses did that. Isn't that credible? So, um, and I, you know, I especially want to underscore that because some of you let Wow Weekends come and go and you don't think to invite a friend, and that's what they're all about. People come to know Christ at those weekends, and you're missing a great opportunity to bring a friend who might not want to darken the door of a church, usually, but would come for a wow speaker, just a thought. Anyway, so I'm reading the short biography of A.C. Green, and I discover that one of his favorite uh, 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 strategies on the basketball court is trash-talking. Now, he's a Christ follower, so it's got nothing to do with crude or profane language, but he has learned that this is part of the game. If you could get an opponent really mad at you, irritated you know, by trash talking, then you're going to throw him off. He's going to do something stupid. He's going to miss his shots. He's going to double dribble. He's going to foul you. Th- this is what John is saying in 1 John 2, 11. If somebody irritates you, if they annoy you, if you find it difficult to love them, If you don't start loving them with Jesus' love, you're going to do something stupid. You're you're currently walking around in darkness, and you're going to stumble. You're going to blow up at them. You're going to say things about them that you shouldn't say. You're going to slander them. You're going to gossip about them. If this is the person you're married to who's a jerk, you you may cheat on them. Why not? They're a jerk. If it's your parents, you're going to disobey them because they're a jerk anyway. Stupid rules. You know, when we don't love people who are difficult for us to love, with Jesus' love, the alternative is to walk in darkness, and when we walk in darkness, we're bound to do stupid, God-dishonoring things. You get it?